can't you put a status update on Slack? Yeah. Let me try that. <laughs> Excuse us. We can't report a, a podcast right now because we have to figure out our status updates. Okay, I saved mine as a little microphone. The problem is people won't know what it means. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 14th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me from New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? It's, it's you know, it's a very uh, Monday kind of Tuesday, I feel like. It's going to be Mondays all the way down. <laughs> Mondays from here on out. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? How are you? It's hot here. I'm hot, getting hot in this this Mazda recording studio. I might have to turn the, turn the AC on. I don't think you're allowed to do that. Yeah. in your recorded wait, studio wait you're not supposed to sit in the garage with the engine running does that, <laughs> is no. that, that help you? okay also not that well um, it depends on how the show goes right jeff yeah yeah true yeah um so neil i heard you've been watching some uh formula one you're getting back into your pre-pandemic uh he's always watching formula mode of weird sports (laughs) yeah i mean this was like a nice return for normalcy for me um you know mercedes has dominated so it's just like normal and ferrari is having a lot of drama i mean this is great formula one is great because it's not really about the races themselves uh you know that's guys driving around you know, a course a bunch of times, whatever. But it's really about the soap opera aspect of it with the teams. And in this particular case, Ferrari, their uh, young up and comer, Charles Leclerc, ran into his older and uh, sort of like fallen from grace teammate, Sebastian Vettel, punctured, a, you know, his own uh, chassis in the process and just destroyed both of their um, races on like the first lap of the race. Uh, Never mind your chassis punctured, I think. No, your chassis unpunctured. That's uh, rule number one of Formula One. (laughs) You, uh, you're, you're the, the weird sports that you like are truly amazing. I I can't figure out why. I mean, I do know why you like Formula One because you did a story on Formula One and then because I liked it when I was, when I was 12. Oh, right. I mean, that's like what most of these things come down to, right? It's like, did I like sport XYZ when I was 12? Yes. Then yes, I'm going to be into it. Why did you like Formula One when you were 12? You couldn't even drive. I found, so fun fact, one one time we were on vacation and I found a Formula One magazine uh, at the place that we're staying uh, and it happened to be on a race weekend. And so I just was like reading the magazine and watching it. And I was like, oh my God, this is pretty awesome. And that was the genesis of my Formula One fandom. So really, really, that magazine could have been anything and sent Neil Payne on a completely different totally trajectory. different path. It could, have been, yeah. it could have been about birding or like model plane building. And then all of a sudden, you know, butterfly flaps its wings. We're not here. Wow. You're wow. on a so different true. podcast. So true. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest cancellations, delays, and conference-only schedules as college football desperately tries to keep its Jenga tower of a season from falling down. We'll also talk about Manchester City's successful appeal of its Champions League ban and what that might mean for the future of UEFA's financial fair play rules. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
A series of dominoes falling over the past week has made the college football season seem even more unlikely, or at least more complicated. Last Wednesday, the Ivy League announced it was canceling all fall sports for 2020. Then on Thursday, the Big Ten announced that it would be restricting its schedule to conference-only play. Then on Friday, the Pac-12 followed suit and went to a conference-only model. The Pac-12 also announced that its commissioner, Larry Scott, has contracted COVID-19 and was in quarantine. So everything in college football is going great. The ACC, SEC, and Big 12 have all said they will determine what they're doing by the end of July, but voluntary workouts have already started on college campuses. And in the case of some schools, including Ohio State and North Carolina, they've already stopped because of positive coronavirus cases. Colleges are between a rock between a rock and a hard place here with the financial incentives they have to play, especially football, and the obligations they have to protect their students. But Bamani Jones had this to say on ESPN's Outside the Lines about even the presence of student athletes on campus right now. Everything about football, from the numbers of players needed to field a team, the proximity of the players while they're on the field, lots of obese players, and the rich old men on the sidelines is a COVID red flag. Arizona is taking precautions, only allowing 20 COVID-negative athletes as of now. But it is a living, breathing bad idea the schools are trying because the financial repercussions of missing the season would be monstrous. That's uncomfortable, but it's honest and it's understandable. But having athletes on campus when it's too dangerous for the larger student body? That's giving the game away. It wasn't long ago we'd have saw the player's character for receiving pocket change from a booster. There's more perspective now, greater recognition of the inherent unfairness of so-called amateurism, and reaction to victimless crime has been tempered. But we still don't have enough perspective to see a player ask why what's good enough for him isn't good enough for his classmates and fill in the obvious blank. Because the players work for the school and the real students don't. So is this right? Are, are schools sacrificing player safety for the financial incentives that they have to play? Jeff, what do you think about that? Yes. Yes. The answer to that question, if they play, would be yes, um, because that's just the way college sports is. I mean, it, it's about money. I mean, these are the two, this is a revenue sport. This um, and it's serious. It's a serious hit to the revenue for a lot of these all of these athletic departments with football teams, um, especially on a year where you already lost the NCAA tournament. You already took a big revenue hit, not to mention the the money hit that schools left and right are hitting are going to get in general by not having, you know, people on campus. Um, you know, the, there's just not there's not enough money in there to support a full athletic department, and I think um, they need football for the for you know to to float a lot of these athletic departments. Um, and I think what we'll see, you know, it, it, you know, it's it's about money, but it, it's not in some cases about greed it's about money that's necessary to you know keep student athletics going i mean i, I think we might see programs shut down we, we might see all sorts of um effect to this and and not just the, this year you know in, in the next couple of years yeah and this idea that you know sacrificing player safety for financial incentives i mean that is true um pretty much everything not just in sports but like the whole of society is sacrificing people's health uh, to some degree or another because of financial incentives. I mean, it is sort of a balancing act between like how much activity can we sustain while, 
you know, trying to keep the virus under control, not saying that we're doing that at the moment. But I mean, that's like the terrible thing about this virus is that it shuts down a lot of the things that make our economy go. And so you have to choose like it's about trade-offs. And in this particular case, yeah, you're totally right, Jeff. If this a sport that didn't generate money like football, football is the revenue generating sport, uh, not just a revenue generating sport. And so, you know, if it were any other sport, they'd cancel it. Uh, and in this particular case, they're keeping it open because the consequences and in some ways self-serving for the athletic directors and the schools, certainly, but the consequences financially short and long term could be really devastating. And that's why they're trying it. Now, that being said, it's a pretty easy fix. You could give everyone in the country a red shirt. We already have red shirt as a system you know, for injuries or transfers. And, uh, you know, you give everyone a red shirt. And then if you need a red shirt on top of a red shirt, we'll call that something new. A pink shirt. A a pink shirt. (laughs) Um, And, and yeah, you're a year older. But, um, you know, most of them are not going to the NFL anyway. And we've seen guys, you know, play college football long past their actual, like, graduation from college so (laughs) what does it matter uh, you know (laughs) yeah i mean i i don't know that there is like malicious intent here grown adult (laughs) athletes can decide for themselves whether the trade-off is worth it for them whether their family needs them to not not play, not go to these bubbles or whatever, or whether their family needs them to play. Students don't, I feel like the colleges need to take more of a step to protect their students. Um, They're still that weird, you know, they're not quite fully formed adults yet. I know they're technically adults, but they seem young. They seem younger all the time, honestly. Um, Maybe that's just me being very old. Um, That's all of us. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I feel like there's something else that that colleges owe their students there. And like, if it's taking that hit for a year financially, I mean, I think we're the whole country is taking a hit financially, right? It's just interesting to me how this, like every sports situation we've encountered is just a microcosm of what the country at large is facing. The money in college athletics, I think, is just going to make this happen, even regardless of of students testing positive or not. I don't know. Do you guys think it is going to happen that the season is going to happen for college football? Oof, I don't know. I mean, the, the, we'll talk about the conference only stuff, uh, which I think maybe makes it more likely that it's going to happen. But I was just going to say also the decentralized nature of college sports and, you know, college football, since we're talking about it, I think also plays a big role in just why it feels a lot less well-organized and more dangerous I mean, they didn't even have a centralized national championship until pretty recently uh, that, you know, it's just this hodgepodge of a bunch of different, uh, you know, tolerances for risk. And, you know, they're organized by conference and by athletic program and, you know, deans of the different schools. Like there's so many different moving parts and there's no like centralized leadership to just say, like, this is how we're doing it, which is actually somewhat similar to the U.S. situation, too, where it's like a bunch (laughs) of states are making... (laughs) I was like, sounds this sounds familiar. Very familiar. <laughs> this really familiar, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, every state has stitched together its own, you know, wildly disparate uh, response plan uh, and testing plan and all of these things. Uh, and, and they've had different outcomes as a result. And so I think college football might be the most American of all sports in a lot of different ways. And that's why we're kind of seeing it struggle to, to come to grips with this, probably even more so than the pro sports. Yeah. 
Well, so, all right, the conference-only models, will those make a difference here? I mean, you know, the Big Ten is not exactly a tight little regional outfit anymore. It used to be. Yeah, it's not anymore. I mean, Nebraska still has to travel to Maryland. Wisconsin would still have to go to Rutgers. Like, the Big Ten isn't that. So, and neither is the Pac-12. So, Neil, are they really mitigating risk here? I mean, they're probably mitigating it some just because the fewer um, places you have to travel to, the fewer opponents that you have to play, uh, you know, probably cuts down on the transmission if there is some kind of outbreak in one place. You know, in theory, if each conference is a bubble unto itself, then if there's some kind of outbreak with one team, it won't affect all of college football. It will only affect the teams that those have played. But as we saw when things shut down back in March, the the ripple effect of how quickly, you know, some positive tests on uh, one team can spread out across a bunch of different other teams. I, I think it's I think it's two things. I think uh, the main thing is about time. You know, the the on a conference games are the first three games. So by doing this, you're buying time. And I think the way we're seeing, you know, spikes in hospitalizations and in tests and across the country, they just can't start right now in this um, current environment. The way that the way this thing is seemingly spiraling out of control again, um, they need good news. They need to see cases going down. I, you know, I think from a medical perspective, they, they won't start if cases are still climbing like this. So by, by pushing it back to what first week in October or late September, whatever it is, um, you're, you're buying a little more time for things to turn around. And, and even within that, if you're, you know, if it's just conference play, you can also cut down from a, a nine or 10 game schedule to, you know, even fewer games if you had to. Um, you know, you could say you're, you're just playing the, the teams in your division if you have divisions in one of these conferences. Um, so I think that's a big factor. It gives them more control and also gives them control against who they're playing. They can just set the rules. As you said, Neil, I mean, the comparison to the federal government and the state response is, is very apt in this case. There's no national leadership. And, and really the losers here will be the, the group of five conferences, I think, because those conferences generally have less money and they depend on these games. And, you know, we pro we point to these high profile, you know, um, on a conference matchups, you know, at the beginning of the year. And those are the ones every watch, but that's not the vast majority of these. The vast majority is not Alabama playing USC. It's Alabama playing Kent state. Um, <laughs> and, while that is not an important game to Alabama, that's a very important game to Kent State, especially in terms of money. So if if we if college football does go ahead and and colleges do try to get a season in this fall, but all five power five conferences switch to conference only schedules, that has a bunch of other implications, too. Neil, what would that mean for the college football playoff? Well, they have said that. uh they are just going to use the same criteria as always and try to pick the four best teams, (laughs) which I think is, I I know (laughs) I mean, we have already, I think last year we made the case for an expanded college football playoff. One that probably includes automatic bids for all of the power five conference, plus some at large, or maybe, you know, something from one of those group of five um, uh, conferences as well. And, 
you know, that made sense in a normal season. I think that's the only thing that makes sense in a situation like this, because if every conference is their own self-contained closed system, we have literally no way to know who, you know, how the conferences stack up. And it really is going to default back to like the SEC, the Big Ten, Clemson. I mean, they'll probably just use the perceptions of how good the conferences were from 2019. It'll just be a replay of last year's playoff. Yeah, like, okay, but fine. I mean, it might it might actually be that, uh, which it would be a real shame. Uh, you know, obviously, as far as these things go in the grand scope of things, it's a small shame comparatively uh, in the pandemic. But it it definitely speaks to the fact that in college football, you already don't play enough games and not enough of a sample of different opponents to get like a great idea of who the best teams are, you know, relative to each other. And now we're just going to totally blow up any chance that we have to compare teams across conferences. I also don't know what Notre Dame is going to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> if all of the, like, would they join a, con- I mean, frankly, they should have joined a conference a long time ago. So this is kind of what they get. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, would they like provisionally join the big 10 or something for like one season only just to be able to play a conference schedule and how, you know, love to be a fly in the wall for the negotiations around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it just creates all these logistical problems and, in terms of deciding who makes the playoff, you want to talk about playoffs that have asterisks attached yeah. to them. This would be the one in addition to, you know, cramming a season in uh, against all advice from medical experts or logic or reason, or, you know, uh, the optics of having college players play while college students are not even on campus, putting all that aside (laughs) on top of that, we would have this like weird sham of a playoff in which we'd have no idea who the best teams are and still just pick them anyway and have them play each other. So honestly, that sounds like all the other playoffs too. So (laughs) (laughs) at least it's a little better under normal circumstances than it would be this year. Yeah, it, it it's tricky. It's tricky because also you have some conferences, you know, like the Big Ten, that will play nine conference games and then some like the ACC and the SEC that play eight. And um, also, what do you do with these, you know, non-conference, you know, annual matchups? You know, like, for instance, Notre Dame. Clemson is supposed to go to Notre Dame. But Clemson also is supposed to, as they always do, play South Carolina. So it's going to come down to this weird choice like, do we play South Carolina or do we go to Notre Dame? Um, and or or either. Like, what if they don't do either because it's not, um, you know, non-conference games are just off the table. Period. We'd lose all these rivalry games, like Iowa, Iowa State for you, Sarah, uh, Georgia, Georgia Tech for me. You know, there's a bunch. Uh, at least Jeff, your biggest rival is in conference, so you'll still get to play <laughs> Michigan, right. Michigan, Ohio State. Right. Which I know you love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. You're like, can we cancel Michigan and Ohio <laughs> can State? Can we just too? play I mean... teams uh, in the state of Michigan? You know, like uh, Eastern Michigan, Eastern? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Central Michigan, maybe Michigan State, if we have time. Um, but yeah, you, so you have that problem. But, but then I guess what you're going to make the SEC teams do is play another SEC game, which they've always avoided you know sort of cannibalizing themselves by limiting their conference schedule because it's so hard so that's interesting but then you you know back to the playoff it it would be ludicrous to not expand the playoff this year of all years (laughs) i think their fear is that once you expand the playoff there's there's no going back you, Which you can't do anything anyway because it's going to be amazing and exciting and everyone's going to love it 
And also, by the way, it will bring in more money. We're talking about money and we're talking about these struggling programs. It will bring in, you You offer that up to the, the highest bidder, ESPN, whoever wants to pay for it, people will pay for it. That's a lot more money. So yeah. it, it, it's ludicrous that they wouldn't expand this year. Like you take these Pac-12 teams, you know, the, the job of the Pac-12 is to lose on a conference in the beginning and then have a good year in your conference and then not get selected to the playoffs. That's that. That's the rule. That's just how it works. So all of a sudden, <laughs> Oregon doesn't have to play Ohio State and uh, USC doesn't have to play Alabama. They're probably going to have great years. So guess what? Now you're going to have to you can't automatically cross them out because they had those early year losses and the yeah. decision making is going to be impossible. Yeah. What if all of the power five conferences are won by undefeated teams? And then you have to choose and then throw in like a UCF or someone like that, you know, that also goes undefeated. And then all of a sudden you're picking four from like six undefeated teams. I mean, like, how does that work? Uh, You know, the whole thing is seems like it's hanging by a thread. The bowl games. (laughs) Are we really going to like seriously have the beefo Brady's bowl? You know, I mean, that seems insane. But I, yeah, that's something I haven't thought about yet and haven't heard anything about whether those are being canceled or not. I mean, we need the Beef O'Brady's Bowl <laughs> in the Bahamas. Really? Bowl. Yeah, it's not it's a tradition. Yeah. At this point. If we can't have that, then we should just cancel the entire college football season. I, it would be wild to me if this is the year that we get the change we wanted in college football, that we get an expanded playoff and we make Notre Dame join a conference. Like, wouldn't that be wild if that was the outcome of this going forward? And then they start paying the players and it's just, is it even college football anymore? Yeah, where even are we? <laughs> I don't even know you anymore, college football. I think we can end the discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break before we talk about soccer. We have more big news from the world of European soccer, and I am not talking about Tottenham's gritty win over Arsenal on Sunday in the North London Derby. Just kidding. Both those teams are trash. The game Take was that, trash. Tony. <laughs> I was very happy to win, but it was not a fun viewing experience at all. <laughs> The Court of Arbitration for Sport on Monday overturned the decision by the Union of European Football Associations, or UEFA, that had banned Manchester City from European competition play for two years. It also cut the amount City was fined from 30 million euros to 10 million euros. This basically wiped out the financial penalty levied against City for lying about where its revenue came from, but it did penalize City for obstructing UEFA's investigation into its financial dealings. The ruling has significant implications for City and for big football clubs across Europe and for the future of UEFA's financial fair play rules. Ryan Hun of Ringer FC had this to say about the future of financial fair play on the Stadio podcast on Monday. Whilst financial fair play, I think, came from a good place, weirdly, mm. and it has done a lot of good, I think it has checked cl- a certain amount of clubs and stopped them from going completely wild on on expenditure however as time's going on i mean it's been here what over a decade now right it's now cemented those people at the very top with the highest amount of revenues because clubs with smaller revenues with ffp they're never going to be able to get to the point where they can properly contend over a sustained period because they just can't generate the revenue i think what it has done is that it's it's another i don't want to sound dramatic but it's it's like another nail in the ffp coffin now you have to kind of question why it's there its initial goal has been fulfilled to a certain degree. However, when clubs do violate the rules, there is very little fallout. 
So I know we talked about the Man City ruling back in March, but that was before the pandemic. So so it doesn't really count. So Neil can even remember. Yeah. What? Who even knows that? Um, So Neil, can you walk us through the financial fair? What financial fair play is and why it was implemented in the first place? Yeah, sure. So uh, these are rules that are basically intended to keep clubs from spending excessively on players. You know, it's a little bit like what we're used to over here in the States with like salary caps, revenue sharing, that type of thing. But uh, there's also unique twists to these particular rules uh, for soccer. So the idea is that clubs can spend only the money that they earn in revenues, not the money that they're often ridiculously wealthy owners pour into the clubs. Uh, And so it means that in order to increase the amount of payroll that you take on as a team, you have to bring in more money in sponsorships. And they can't be sponsorships that are sort of connected to the owner. So for instance, in this particular case, City's owner was accused of basically using this airline company that he also owns as this shell company to funnel sponsorship money into the soccer team. But in fact, it was actually allegedly money that he himself just kind of used uh, the the sponsoring company as a middleman for to divert his own money into the team and then took on more payroll, added better players, and yada, 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 won a lot of matches. Uh, so the, the rules are intended to keep you from doing that basically as a check on how much influence these wealthy owners can can kind of exert uh, and and try to win compared with teams that are owned by uh, more modest uh, billionaires. Yeah, you know, billionaires. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like the difference between, you know, being one of the five richest people on Earth and just being you know, a normal run of the mill billionaire. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's the general idea of how it's supposed to kind of work uh, in UEFA, especially since UEFA is comparing teams across not just one football organization or country, but all of the major leagues and countries uh, and trying to kind of find a common way to keep them from, you know, if you had one team in the EPL that just went hog wild spending money, you know, would it really be fair for them to then enter this, you know, competition across uh, clubs from all over Europe uh, and, and then just run roughshod over them? So it's like their way of trying without maybe meddling too much in the affairs of each individual country and league uh, of trying to keep things in some kind of competitive balance. But I think we could argue a lot over how uh, effective that actually is. Right, right, right. So Jeff, does the, does this court ruling exonerate city? Are they free and clear now? No, I mean, well, yes, they're free and clear and they're not exonerated, but uh, it, it, it's kind of silly. Cause if you look at it, it really comes down to a, you know, a statute of limitations problem. Uh, it, the original, you know, violation stems from a 2014 thing where both Man City and, and PSG Paris Saint-Germain um, were already punished. And then it was it's sort of timed out, which makes me think, why did we even bother with all this? If we knew like I'm not a lawyer, I'm married to a lawyer, but it would sense <laughs> I would guess that you you could have seen this coming, this counter argument when it went to appeal that it had timed out. So it, it makes me think that this whole charade might have been pointless. Yeah, I saw someone say that the UEFA they thought the the allegations were so strong that it would overcome that like time barred issue, which seems like 
that's like the kind of thing that just makes something move, right? Like you, you can't yeah. really get over that. So, um, so it's really hard to know whether, whether, a, a, a court case like this would be successful in a different situation, but also UEFA has tried this repeatedly with different clubs and not, it has not worked. Do you think that other big clubs will just throw caution to the wind and spend all of their money? They're suddenly, you know, sponsored by, some company with bearing the team owner's name that's just funneling money directly into the team. And I mean, why not? In this particular case, they even had smoking gun emails yeah. that basically made it clear that they were doing this. But because of the the statute of limitations thing, I guess it just didn't matter. And it does show that, you know, in cases where you have to choose between you know, the amount of time that's passed versus the the severity of the evidence, it seems like they're going to choose the the court of, you know, sport uh, is going to choose uh, and come down on the side of the amount of time that's passed. Now, we should also say that, you know, money doesn't necessarily 100% buy you championships in European soccer. And with the two teams that you just talked about, Sarah Tottenham and Arsenal, you know, didn't have the types of seasons that they envisioned for themselves despite massive payroll budgets. So, you know, it's possible for, for teams to kind of sneak up from the bottom ranks or at least the mid-tier and and uh, make some noise. But again, you know, competitive balance, I think, is a lot worse in European soccer than it is in any of the major pro sports that we talk about on the show, you know, from North America. Um, so if anything, this might embolden them to try to take it to an even greater level. Yeah, I I feel like it's going to be harder for for teams to for teams that don't have that financial advantage. Because you if you can if you can spend enough money to get yourself into regular Champions League appearances, there is so much money in Champions League that it can really be a self-perpetuating thing. You just have a head start on every other team. And can buy the players that will make you better. Now, whether you're a team that's good at buying the right players is part of the problem for some of these rich clubs. Looking at you, Tottenham. But like, I mean, that's that's if you can buy enough players, you can also afford to make mistakes about who you buy. And that's been a flaw. I mean, that's been a flaw with financial fair play as it exists you know, since it came into to place, because it really is sort of saying, well, here's some money that you're allowed to spend. And here's some money that you're not allowed to spend. But the money you're allowed to spend is kind of just comes from this cycle, like you mentioned, of the best teams get more sponsorship money and do better and then get more sponsorship money. Yeah. And it doesn't really address the core problem. You got it. You got those sponsorships because you've won a lot and you're very visible and you keep making the Champions League or winning your domestic cup and it just perpetuates itself forever yeah it, it doesn't make a lot of sense i mean they're trying to stop owners particularly let's be honest foreign owners russian oligarchs people from the emirates american billionaires by the way <laughs> yeah um yeah. <laughs> uh from coming in and, and and buying titles going full steinbrenner um but <laughs> when when you're trying and by the way if the steinbrenner years showed everything that that doesn't always work and we've seen that in soccer too um but if, if you're trying to get an owner to not use money or a group of owners that they have it, it's just to me it's a flawed system I, and i i get that it helps the smaller clubs but it seems like long term it, 
these teams will will find a way to use their resources. Well, so should there be some sort of salary cap or some kind of of that kind of a, a system in soccer, or should there should it be a free for all? Which is better? I mean, I think from a competitive balance standpoint, it would be great to see uh, some kind of salary cap or revenue sharing or something like that. But again, you have to work it out, not just at the league level, but also uh, across all of the countries and leagues. And, you know, you start to get into some really complicated ways of balancing um, across all of them. And I think also the problem is in order to get that accepted, you would have to have buy-in from the top teams that are the ones that benefit greatly from the current system and don't want to be forced to spend less. And so it seems like it would be kind of a non-starter for uh, the most powerful clubs. Yeah. I mean, there there was a period there where, you know, these top leagues and, you know, you could argue it still exists, just seemed way too top heavy. But at the same time, the global economy with everything going on is not doing great. So an influx of cash in the sport, I mean, you know, maybe maybe it'll be more embraced than it was in previous years. All right. We should be encouraging the wealthiest, the 0.1% to be spending. So spend on soccer teams may as well, right? <laughs> well, and that's the, that's a big thing about this is that I think the financial fair play rules as they currently exist are all are kind of transparently about reducing players ability to make money more than about leveling the playing field between, um, you know, the top clubs or bringing them back down toward the middle of the pack. Because what it's saying is basically we don't want you just going crazy and spending a bunch of money on transfers uh, and ultimately raising the salaries of these top players and or creating bidding wars for these top players using your personal wealth that then will raise the the salary expectations for everyone uh, in in European soccer and and suddenly you know you have the top players making a lot of money and i know that you know the top players are the ronaldos and the messis and all these guys they make a bunch of money they're the mo- i think the highest paid athletes in the world as a general rule um, but at the same time they could be making more based on the revenues and especially based on the amount of money that these owners want to put into their teams and and the financial fair play rules kind of make that more complicated as we've seen with city they don't necessarily stop it from happening yeah i think that's it's a fair point that the other the the other teams that want like city not be able to be able to spend as much as it wants it's not because they're worried about the less wealthy teams they're worried about having to pay more than they want to pay to the players keep so, up. yeah yeah lots of things can be true at the same time as with all things but it's also you can't fight like they should embrace the globalization of of the sport i mean you know there's foreign ownership is not going anywhere and, and if anything it's going to increase in all these leagues you look at you know this chinese ownership left and right in in the english league and all and not even the just the top tier, you know, in in the lower ranks too. So maybe need new owners if you can't keep up with these teams. Well, right. And maybe that's the way we're going to get more Cinderella stories because there's suddenly an influx of cash from a new, um, a new owner with lots of money to spend. Well, city itself was one of those teams long ago, you know, they were not the the powerhouse um, that they have been in recent years for a long time. And then they just sort of zoomed up. And it happened to coincide with new ownership. It's funny how that works. Out. Yeah, interesting. I, I don't know when I turned into the Gordon Gecko of European <laughs> soccer. But... 
<laughs> yeah, I, I like that. It's a good look on you. Um, of course, there's one very real outcome of all of this, of the court reeling. So now Manchester City <laughs> has won itself a Champions League spot for next season. And any Premier League club hoping to sneak into the Champions League with the fifth spot in the table is now firmly out of luck. So Leicester, the last great Cinderella story in the EPL, and might be the last Cinderella, who knows, is now in uh, danger of not getting that Champions League spot. They are uh, in in fourth place, tied with Man U, and who knows if they'll be able to pull it out. So, And we knew this would happen. I mean, we, we mentioned this. <laughs> When we talked about this the first time, that there was a very as as much as it looked like there was a smoking gun against City, we knew that the court of uh, European sport or whatever the um, the organization uh, is called would have some very European bureaucratic uh, sport person stuff to pull left <laughs> potentially up their sleeve. Bureaucratic and, sport person. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the type. They wear blazers. You know, it's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, it stinks for for the teams that are on the the cusp, you know, especially Leicester. I feel bad for them because it looks like now they're going to be the odd team out because of this. Yeah. But on the flip side, and here comes <laughs> Gordon again with another, <laughs> <laughs> another take. Um, Man City is clearly the second best team in that league. Yeah. You know. By a significant distance. So yeah, our they, soccer. I mean, our system thinks they're the best. Yeah, our soccer power index thinks they're better than Liverpool. Liverpool's just gotten kind of lucky this year, which I think is actually true. That most even Liverpool fans can admit that. So yeah, if you want the best teams from the EPL in Champions League, it does seem right that Man City would be there. But if you were, uh, I, I'm glad that Tottenham was so far down the table that I was like, they're not going <laughs> to, Champions League is over. Maybe they can hold on for <laughs> Europa. I don't know. No, not even well, that. Apparently there's still a non-zero chance according to our model. There is. <laughs> um, if you're a Leicester fan, A, you you're still riding on fumes of the championship. So I don't feel that bad for you. Um, in fact, you could argue it's the, the best team to happen to <laughs> B you, as we said, we talked about it. You had to know that this was a very likely scenario and that to really ensure a, a spot in the champions league, you had to be in that, that top four, not fifth place. Yep. And they still have a chance, but it is much more precarious than it was um, a couple months ago. All right, we can leave this here for now. We'll be back in a moment with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Yeah, so on Monday, uh, related to something that we talked about at length last week, Washington's NFL team officially announced that it would be retiring its nickname and logo. Their statement read, Dan Snyder and Coach Ron Rivera are working closely to develop a new name and design approach that will enhance the standing of our proud, tradition-rich franchise and inspire our sponsors, fans, and community for the next hundred years. I like have this image now of Ron Rivera... <laughs> In front just of those a two. computer with a Photoshop. Yeah, like trying to... <laughs> just like MS Paint. No one's consulted. It's the two of them in a room going, uh, I've always thought... What about Wildcats? <laughs> Ron uh... Rivera is a graphic designer at heart, so this makes sense. <laughs> graphic design is his passion. Yeah. Um, little known fact. So, you know, 
the, uh, we said last week this had been a long time coming, and I think we'll probably have plenty to react to when the new name and branding does get unveiled. But for right now, I want to talk about the club that Washington just joined, which is teams that made nickname changes. So since 1901, there have been 31 nickname changes for MLB teams for any reason. The most recent came in 2008. The Devil Rays became just the Rays. Uh, but they're pretty rare. Uh, only nine have taken place since World War II. Of those, four were of the Tampa Bay Rays type variety, which was a team changing its name without changing cities. Uh, Washington will be in that club. Those four were Tampa Bay in 2008, Devil Rays to Rays. 1965, Houston Colt 45s became the Houston Astros. <laughs> and then there are two that you guys might not think will count. We'll see. In 1954, the Cincinnati Reds became the Cincinnati Redlegs. <laughs> And then in 1960, after six years, they decided, let's drop the legs. We'll go back to being Reds. Wait, I don't know if what? that counts. Why not. did they do that? Why did they? I, I don't know. I did not de delve that deep into the rabbit hole, but they went from Reds. Six years, they were the Red Legs. And then they went back to the Reds, officially speaking. Terrible. Whether or not that counts, the other five were all due to relocating. So the Montreal Expos moved to Washington, became the Nationals in 2005. Washington Senators became the Texas Rangers in 1972. The Seattle Pilots became the Milwaukee Brewers in 1970. The Another version of the Washington Senators became the Minnesota Twins in 1961, Sarah's Twins. Yep. And then, of course, the St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore and became the Orioles in 1954. Now, in the era before that, though, there were a ton of nickname changes, 22 of them, and only three were because of a franchise changing cities. We think about these happening more often because you change a team, Expos to national style. But actually, that was pretty rare in the pre-World uh, War II uh, or kind of leading up to World War II era. So there were five by the Braves alone. They were the Bean Eaters. Then they were the Doves. Then they were the Rustlers. Then they were the Braves. Then they were the Bees, the Boston Bees. And then five years later, they went back to being the Braves and then, you know, moved to Milwaukee and now Atlanta. And they're under fire, by the way, right now uh, and may eventually have to change to something new. Uh, and so the Cubs, they were the Chicago Orphans. Until oh, no. Three. Oh, wow. The team we now know as the New York Yankees were known as the Baltimore Orioles before 1903. Now, I should say, full disclosure, there's a debate over whether this counts as the same franchise. And the Yankees have decided it's far too gauche to be associated with the Orioles in a previous life. And so they actually officially leave that chapter out of their history uh, and, and ask baseball reference to change it at one wow. point or another uh, so that the 1903 Baltimore Orioles. But, you know, it was I think the ownership was transferred to the same person. Uh, and a lot of the players transferred to the same team that made up the Yankees at that point, uh, or the Highlanders, I guess, as they were known before they became the Yankees. Uh, the Phillies were actually known as the Blue Jays, as in what Toronto is called right now in 1943 and 1944. That's a fun little departure as well. So basically, my takeaway for baseball was they played really fast and loose with team nicknames in the first half of the 20th century before you know, kind of stabilizing into what we think of now uh, in uh, in the post-war period. Let's move on to the NFL. So the NFL and 
the various pro leagues that merged into it over the years have had 33 total nickname changes going back to 1921, only one of which has technically come since 1963. That was when the Tennessee Oilers became the Tennessee Titans in 1999. I say technically because the Cleveland Browns moved to Baltimore and became the Ravens in 1996, but the NFL retconned the franchise continuity uh, when the Browns came back in 1999. And so now the Ravens are considered an expansion team that started in 1996 that just happened to have all of the former Browns players <laughs> on its roster just by chance, you know, randomly. And the Browns, they just took a little hiatus between 1995 and 1999. So it's not technically a team name change because the Ravens are considered to be a new team that came into existence in 96. Uh, a couple of the early AFL teams changed their names in 1963. The Dallas Texans became the Kansas City Chiefs. And the Titans of New York, Jeff's Titans of New York, became Jeff's New York Jets uh, that very same year. And there's also nine cases contained in that 33 number uh, that uh, pertain to one of my favorite phenomena, which were teams that merged during World War II. The Steelers merged with the Eagles to become the Steagles in 1943. Yes. The Steelers <laughs> and the Chicago Cardinals became Card Pit, Card hyphen Pit. Or after they went 0 10 that season, sports writers took to calling them the Carpets, I guess because <laughs> they rolled out the red carpet for other teams to uh, to have victory. That was in 1944. The Boston Yanks and the Brooklyn Tigers merged and just became the Yanks, capital the capital Yanks, no city uh, in 1945. And before World War II, there were a lot of fun name changes involving teams that still exist to this day. The Steelers were the Pittsburgh Pirates until 1940. The Detroit Lions were the Portsmouth, Ohio Spartans until 1934. Uh, and back when the Redskins were in Boston before they went to Washington, they changed to that from the Boston Braves just like the baseball team in 1933. The Chicago Bears were known as the Chicago Staley's, which were named after player coach A.E. Staley until 1922. And just a last note on the NFL, of those 33 teams, 21 came without the team changing city. So Washington will become the 22nd team to change its name without actually relocating to a new city. Oh my God, I, I just had a terrible thought. What if, what if Dan Snyder goes the route of A.E. Staley and renames the team the, the Washington Snyders. <laughs> That'll go over great. Yeah, I think that would be in keeping with, with his uh, reputation. No one, no one would have a problem with that. Okay, looking forward to that announcement. All right, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, this is good content. So in the <laughs> NBA, going back to 1951, that was when my data started. I believe there, that's missing a couple seasons uh, from the very beginning, technically, of the NBA. But anyway, there have been 24 team name changes, uh, including the ABA. The most recent and most mind-boggling one came in 2014 and 15 when the New Orleans Hornets became the New Orleans Pelicans and the Charlotte Bobcats became the Charlotte Hornets, which itself was a name uh, of a former team that existed from 1988 to 2002. This is now a little bit of a Cleveland Browns, Baltimore Ravens situation. So it's unclear as to whether it fully counts toward this right now, they set it up so that all Charlotte teams are part of the same franchise continuity and all new Orleans teams, including the two seasons that the Hornets played in Oklahoma city because of hurricane Katrina are also part of the same continuity. Are you guys following? <laughs> Every time we do anything on NBA, like recent history, we screw up something about the Hornets. Regarding and the those two teams. Yeah, the Ugh. Hornets, Bobcats, Pelicans, and other Hornets. Yeah. Uh, very ripe for confusion. Yeah. 
So before that all went down, the previous name change was when the Washington Bullets became the Washington Wizards going into the 1998 season because the name Bullets made owner Abe Poland uncomfortable given the high number of murders and shootings in D.C. in the early 1990s. Though uh, This was not the first name change for that franchise, though. The Bullets were previously known as the Chicago Packers and the Chicago Zephyrs until 1964, in which they moved to Washington and became the Zephyrs a great Baltimore name. and became the Bullets. Yes, uh, the Zephyrs. They should bring that back. I mean, there's so much potential there with Z. You don't have a lot of names yeah. starting with Z. Uh, and, and Z is a great letter, you yes. guys. We should do more with that. Uh, the Chicago <laughs> Zieglers. Um, yep. In 1979, <laughs> the Buffalo Braves moved to San Diego and became the uh, San Diego Clippers that then moved to L.A. and are now my amended pick to win the 2020 NBA <laughs> title as per our discussion. <laughs> Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers were the Syracuse Nationals until 1964. But my favorite are all of these teams from the ABA, the American Basketball Association, which did a lot of wild things in the 60s and 70s, the red, white, and blue ball, the three-point line. But they also were really fun when it came to name changes. My favorite is the Memphis team. Uh, so it went from being the New Orleans Buccaneers to the Memphis Pros to the Memphis Tams. Now, what's a Tam, you might wonder? Well, that is an acronym for Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi, T-A-M. And their logo was a tam shanter style hat oh, no. that was in the same color as the Oakland A's. So, you know, uh, green and yellow and white. Then they became the Memphis Sounds. They were part owned by Isaac Hayes. Uh, fun fact. And it was a musical reference to the soul music coming out of the city in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you also had the Oakland Oaks, which became the Washington Capitals, which became the Virginia Squires. The Denver Rockets became the Denver Nuggets, which exist now. Uh, New Jersey Americans became the New York Nets, which then later became the New Jersey Nets, which are now the Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> the Pittsburgh Pipers uh, became the Pittsburgh Condors. Uh, the Dallas Chaparrales became the San Antonio Spurs, the San Diego Conquistadors, speaking of problematic names, uh, became the San Diego Sales, and the Houston Mavericks moved to Carolina, became the Carolina Cougars, and then moved to become the Spirits of St. Louis, which there's a great 30 for 30 about how they negotiated in at the merger of the ABA and the NBA. They were able to get a permanent cut of all NBA TV revenue in perpetuity uh, wow. in exchange for not existing anymore. And that was the lineage of the St. Louis, uh, the spirits of St. Louis. So of those 24 name changes, only nine were of the Washington variety without an accompanying franchise relocation. So basketball, you know, when they, when they change their names, it's because they've changed to a new city most of the uh, of the time, whereas in baseball and especially football, it's more just things happen, new owner, or you've had a racist team name for a long time. Now you, <laughs> but sometimes it. not. But I think of basketball. I think of basketball being notable for the teams that moved and didn't change their names, and their names make no sense. Like the Lakers. There's Utah what, Jazz. What lake are they talking about? Silver Lake. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also, there are no grizzly bears anywhere near Memphis. That is a fact. <laughs> anywhere near. Not yeah, even I mean, remotely close. That's a fault you can take with these ones that like we've been talking about teams that change names, but the, the arguably, yeah, the ones that didn't change names should have changed names uh, to, to just make any sense geographically <laughs> for, for their new locale. So those are just, you know, there's a long history, long lineage of teams changing their names that Washington uh, will now join. Not all of them were done 
In fact, most of them were not done to avoid, you know, long held problematic names, but mainly because of other very weird and assorted reasons. Um, but this will kind of join that. So it's just, it's not that odd for all the people saying like, oh, we've been known as this one team name for a long time. And, you know, this that, and the other teams change their names all the time in sports. Yeah, it doesn't need to be that big of a deal. And in fact, maybe we should take this time to change problematic names, but just dumb names too. I had also forgotten before we talked about this last week that Stanford, the University of Stanford had been the Indians until as recently as 1972. That is not that long ago. And does anyone ever think about that now? They're so like so well known as the Cardinal. Um, So this doesn't need to be that big of a deal for organizations making better choices. Right. And Syracuse did the same thing. They used to have a stereotypical Native American character and then they changed to the orange and now they have Otto the orange, which is one of the most beloved mascots. And I would argue the Stanford tree uh, in its ramshackle, bizarre, self-designed uh, <laughs> style is also one of the most beloved and iconic mascots. So you can get something better yeah. on the other side if, if you make a change like this. Yeah, absolutely. College, uh, Neil didn't do college, but there are some great ones in college, um, according to Wikipedia. Not a primary source, but <laughs> we'll go with it anyway. It is for this podcast. Oh Have gosh. you heard my rabbit holes before? <laughs> no, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, I'm just going to point them out, um, which is a it's a solid name. You know, my criteria is I like unique names that that aren't found elsewhere. Um, but they're used to formally be known as the Antelopes. The Bug Eaters, mm-hmm. the Old Gold Knights, the Rattlesnake Boys, and the Tree Planters. I mean, <laughs> Rattlesnake Boys is amazing. The Rattlesnake Tree Planters. I mean, Bug Eaters. Bug Eaters is something they still like hold on to, too. There's like it's, still. For good reason. Yeah. For good reason. Also, fun fact they are never known as the Corn Huskers. They're always. Huskers to Husker fans. So you can always tell if someone right. knows Nebraska football well if they say corn huskers or huskers. Okay. Well, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> my little Midwestern but, um, facts for you. <laughs> but they are the, uh, that's fine, but they are technically the corn huskers. <laughs> sure. And the bug eaters. <laughs> always. Bug and eaters bug forever. Eaters. And, the, and, but, but now I'm only going to refer to them as the rattlesnake boys or maybe <laughs> the old gold knights. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, that was a very fun rabbit hole. Um, I love thinking about all these weird old team names. Uh, There are so many good names in history that the Washington football team could choose from. So we'll see. Hopefully, maybe by next week, we'll know what their new name is. I say go with Tams. The Tams. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) A tribute to Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, which border Washington, D.C. I still like the filibusters. No, they won't do that. Yeah, filibusters is pretty fun. (laughs) <laughs> I think they'll go. I actually think they'll go with the um, red tails just because I know from going to Washington games that they are obsessed with that fight song. Oh, um, you know, the hail to the so they can keep <laughs> that those lyrics intact. And I, I really do think that is an important part of the tradition. So they, they'll go with that. Hail to the Busters. I think it's good to, to name your team around a fight song. I, I like that a lot, actually. I think that makes sense. <laughs> All right, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you are subscribed, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, It helps other people discover the show, and I promise I will read your review. 
You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.